So I'm going to ask that as many of you as possible sit during this. Some of you may not be able to, but um, it's a little tricky to give Dharma talks to people who are snoring. (laughs) And that is all too often what happens at the end of the day. So if your back will allow it, it's really helpful if you're vertical and not horizontal. So we decided, I decided, in a fit of inspiration a few weeks ago, that what we would do for the Toxis retreat is follow the theme of the Four Noble Truths. And as it began to play itself out, it became apparent that I was going to give the first talk on suffering, or the truth about suffering. And I'm here to tell you, if I had realized how much suffering there was going to be around writing a talk on suffering, I think I probably would have handed it off to one of my friends here. It was amazing as I spent the afternoon really working on it, and every now and then my mind would just fuzz up completely, and I couldn't think clearly, and I couldn't understand what it was I was trying to say. And I realized after a while that this is one of those teachings, it's a little like mindfulness practice. You know, in mindfulness practice we say, be present, right? Be here with your breath and your body, your mind and your heart. Just stay in the present moment. Sounds really simple. That's enough instruction for quite a while, actually. And then you try to do it, and you realize that what sounds so easy isn't. And I think that is what is true about this teaching about the the first of the noble truths. And so if you get a little fuzzy listening, um, it's not you. It's just that it's not so easy, even though it sounds like it might be. So with that introduction, maybe that's just an apology for a fuzzy talk. I don't know. (laughs) You can tell me afterwards. So there's a wonderful story about Suzuki Roshi, who was one of the early (coughs) teachers to bring Zen practice into the West. He was up in San Francisco And he died of cancer. And um, towards the end of his life, someone asked him, you know, what was it like going through this process? And his comment, which is, this is not an exact quote, but it's close, was, it's just suffering Buddha. Just suffering Buddha. And I've thought about that ever since I heard it the first time. You know, what could that possibly mean? And and does it make sense and and probably most importantly how does it relate to my own suffering could I say anything like that about my suffering so the Buddha when he was first enlightened had his experience under the Bodhi tree and um, not too long after he had a couple of encounters and in the first one Um, Some person came up to him and probably thought he looked kind of special, shiny and excited or alert or whatever it is that one looks when one is fully enlightened. And he asked him, the man asked him who he was. And the Buddha said, I am the perfectly enlightened one, the Arahant and the Buddha. And the man was utterly disgusted and went away, probably thinking, you know, who does he think he is? He's been practicing too much or meditating too much or maybe ingesting some interesting substances. But he certainly did not believe him. And although 
it was an accurate description of who he was, the Buddha also realized that it was a lousy first sermon and it didn't work really well. So a bit later on, when he met his five friends who had been practicing with him before his enlightenment experience, when they were practicing with some of the different ascetic teachers, um, they were pretty skeptical of what was happening to the Buddha because he'd left these practices and he'd been eating and doing things a little differently from what they were doing in the ascetic world. And But, you know, they were his friends and they were a bit curious and so they hung around and mm, whatever it was that had happened to him, this awakening, kind of drew them in and he began to teach. So this was a much more successful sermon. And so this is what he said. He said, there is suffering. There is suffering. Dukkha is the word in Pali. There is an origin of suffering. There is the cessation of suffering. And there is a path out of suffering. So this is the teaching which is known as the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And this, to these people, sounded interesting and compelling. And it still is interesting and compelling because I think all of us present are really aware that there is suffering and that things are not so satisfactory in our lives. And we've been caught in it one way and another at different times, probably even in the present moment. And we also know that we don't deal with it very well. And we often try to avoid it and we get really confused about what causes it and we have the foggiest notion of how to end it often. And the path is not clear. the way out. So these are the truths that we're going to be talking about during this retreat, as we said last night. And each one of us is going to take them, but, you know, even tonight at dinner, you know, Jason said, well, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow, you know. So there's going to be, I suspect, a certain amount of overlap in, in the different talks as we, as we work on them. Um, and we'd even thought about maybe one of us could I could write a talk and hand it to Richard and then Richard could give it and then Jason could write a talk and hand it to me and I could give it we could see how that would work <laughs> I don't think that's such a good idea really or we could all just give the same talk that might work pretty well <laughs> and it actually might you know a couple of years ago I sat a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho who's the great venerable master, meditation master who's been the leading um, disciple of Ajahn Chah in the West for many, many years. And um, he loves to talk about the Four Noble Truths. And there was a 10-day retreat, and probably about six days into it, I thought, he gives a talk every morning during that early morning sit and every evening. And partway through, I thought, he's giving the same talk every time. And I was really annoyed. It was like, who does he think he is? You know, the rest of us write a new talk, a different talk every evening. He's giving the same old talk, the same stuff, over and over and over again. I was pretty cranky, and I stomped around for a couple of days. And Then I got over it and got to the end of the retreat. And about a week after the retreat, I went, oh, oh, it really got in in some way <coughs> that... I had never had Dharma talks get in before. 
and that the, that repetition, which of course is how the Buddha taught too, had really um, given it a chance to kind of get into my psyche in a way that hadn't happened before. So that's all by way of encouraging you to be patient if there is some repetition in these talks, because it's a way of hearing these very subtle and very complicated teachings um, in many different ways so that you can digest them. You can let it all soak in. I was thinking about this today with more rain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've had lots and lots of rain. But I don't know about your gardens, but mine is very, very happy. Mm-hmm. And all of these you know, plants are growing. And so you can think of the Dharma sort of raining down on you over and over again. And if it's a little repetitive, that's probably good. So Ajahn Sumedho, since we're talking about him, Sometimes when he teaches about the Four Noble Truths, he says, these are the Four Noble Truths. It's enough to make you sit up a little bit. And and he goes on to say that these these teachings have in them enough material for the practice of a lifetime. And in many ways you would need nothing else. And these are teachings which, they're called noble teachings, because they en- they ennoble us, they make us noble in the working with them. They support our moving through the difficulties of our lives with some dignity and and presence. So there are four, and in the classic way of teaching them, each of the truths has three different aspects. So in a sense, there's twelve insights altogether. So the first of these truths is that there is suffering. And then the, the, so that's the first um, insight about the first truth. There is suffering. And then, in order to penetrate this truth, suffering should be understood. And then when it's all over and you've realized something, suffering has been understood. And each of the truths has those same three steps. There is an origin of suffering, which is the attachment to desire. The second piece of that is that attachment should be let go of. And then the last is it has been let go of. And the third is that there is a cessation of suffering. And then the second part is that this should be realized, the cessation of suffering. And then the last is that it has been. And then the fourth is that there is a path to the end of suffering and the path should be developed and then in the end the path has developed, has been developed. So the first piece sees the issue, sees the question, the suffering or the origin of suffering. The second is the practice. This is the point at which you're really working with this issue in your own being. And the last is the result of a practice. So it's, it's a very reflective kind of process. And so tonight, my assignment, my job, is to begin the conversation with an exploration of the teaching on dukkha, which is often, although not really so accurately, translated as suffering. So the Buddha said, I come to teach about the nature of suffering and the ending of suffering. And so this is not, this is not a metaphysical teaching. 
This is not intended to be any kind of teaching that you're supposed to take in and believe and sort of trust somehow that it's true. And um, so it's not about the inherent nature of the world. And sometimes you hear it very much misunderstood as that. You know, you hear Buddhism is all about suffering. You know, I don't want to be a Buddhist because all they do is suffer. And... Um, or they say everything is suffering, and I don't believe it's all suffering. So that's not what this teaching is. This is a teaching, like we said last night, it's entirely for the investigation and the remedying of your own experience, of looking at where is it that you suffer. Because there is a great deal of difficulty in, in our lives, it's unavoidable, and it's really important to learn how to respond to it wisely. So, you know, we often look around and go, what is going on here? You know, what is... I mean, you pick up the paper or go to CNN on the Internet or wherever it is you go or get the New York Times in your inbox every day like I do and read a bunch of the headlines and... Uh, what is going on here? There is so much suffering. Wars and oil spills and the economy and you know racial stuff. It, it's just endless. What is this human experience that often hurts so much and makes us feel not only uncomfortable but sometimes it's really agonizing. We don't understand and we don't like it. That's pretty much true, I think, for most of us. So the Buddha, the Buddha didn't always know about suffering. It's kind of interesting. And so before his enlightenment, when he was a, when he was young, he was born into a very wealthy family of his time. He said it was a royal family, although that probably meant something very different in those days from what we would think of it. But a wealthy family for his time. And his parents saw to it that he had as little exposure to suffering as possible. In the myth, it's none. He was completely protected from anything, any sickness, any awareness of aging, any awareness of death, any kind of suffering of any sort. <coughs> but, you know, he grew up. And he got to be of a certain age, and like most of us at a certain age, he got kind of curious about what was on the other side of the walls. And he got out. He got his charioteer to take him into town. And he encountered what are sometimes known as the heavenly messengers. So he saw someone who was old, and someone who was very sick, and someone who was dead. And then he saw a monk. And he was completely bowled over by this experience. He had no idea. Can you imagine, you know, if you've, if you've been protected from seeing any of these things all your life, and then you go out and you see somebody who's old, and all you've seen is young people. I mean, what happens? I have that experience sometimes now when I see somebody that I haven't seen for a long time. Like last year, I went to my 50th high school reunion. So the last time I saw them all was when they were 17, right? And now they're all 67 or 68, and gravity has done its thing as well as everything else. And what happened? You know, what happened? You were the 
jock, you know, or you were the homecoming queen, and now you're a little old lady, and it's, it's a really shocking thing to think of seeing that for the first time, or to see someone who was sick or someone who was dead. How could it exist in the world? And then there was this monk who was walking through it all with some sense of ease and presence. And so what was it that he had that was a little different, you know? So, we know that life brings in inevitable pain. Having a body is pain. Being part of a family is pain. Being in relationship has pain. Death certainly brings pain. Work brings pain. In 12-step programs, I, I suspect some of you know, there's this wonderful saying that says, pain is required, but suffering is optional. So, all kinds of pain exists in the human realm. And clearly, the solution to suffering is not in the elimination of pain. That is, in fact, impossible. So, as the Buddha explored the question of, well, what, what's happening? What is all of this angst, all of this upset and stress and dissatisfaction, all of these other translations for this word dukkha that gets translated suffering so often. And and he began to explore about how it arises and how sometimes, I mean, not only do we suffer, but we all have know that experience of we suffer in the same way over and over and over again. Those places where we get caught in cyclic suffering. You're in the you thought you'd found a new love, really different from the last one. And then, you know, two years into the relationship you go, Oh, huh. It's the same one all over again. Or you get a new job thinking it's gonna be different and it turns out to be the same group dynamics and that are same you know, so we're caught around and around and around. And in order to move out of this, we really need to come to understand our suffering. We have to penetrate this experience. So this is the second part of the, the three steps. You have to go into it, you have to understand it in order to figure out what's going on. So we know that there's the kind of suffering that can be very unconscious, where we thrash around and we're annoyed and upset and we're talking to 18 different people about how dreadful the situation is and we're really, really caught. Every one of us has been in that kind of experience probably more than once. But at some point, for most of us, we begin to wake up and we realize, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to suffer in this way. And we begin to approach it a little bit differently. So I have a favorite early retreat story that I often tell about um, a person who went to a retreat that was being taught by Goenka, who is one of the great um, Vipassana teachers of our time and in Goenka's retreats it's a somewhat different lineage from ours um, 
he often they <laughs> use videotapes of him giving the basic instructions and the basic talks. And Goenka's an Indian. And so he speaks that particular flavor of English. And so our person got to the retreat, you know, coming out of a life with difficulty and suffering like we all do. And he was a little nervous. Some of you talked about being nervous last night and not sure he really wanted to be there, but there he was. And he sat down. And so Goenka's, you know, giving the opening remarks and the, and the opening instructions. And all of a sudden... Our friend hears, notice your desperation. And he went, oh, wonderful. They think, they know that I'm desperate. How did they know? You know, they expect people to be desperate. And he felt so seen and so understood and so welcomed. And he kind of relaxed and he went off to bed really happy that it was okay to be desperate, you know, somehow somebody understood that it was just fine to be desperate at a retreat and slept pretty well and got up and went to the sitting in the morning where they replayed the instructions and then he heard what Goenka really said, which was, notice your respiration. (laughs) (laughs) However... It had done its work, right? That he felt like he had been seen, and then he was into the retreat and underway, and obviously was writing about this actually for a Buddhist magazine sometime later. So we all have these moments when we turn. You know, recently I heard a friend talking about you know being a young woman back in the hippie days and. One day she found this interesting cookbook on the library shelves, what she thought then was the Tassajara bread book. And she took it home and began to cook and to read. And of course it's got a lot of good basic Buddhist teaching and Zen teaching in there. And it changed her life. And I laughed when I heard it because I had a similar period, you know, when I was young and making forays into the hippie world and I was in what an unhappy and ultimately unsuccessful marriage and with a couple of small kids and I had no idea who I was none at all and found I also found the Tassajara bread book and also found the world of Jungian analysis and dream work and really began the practice and experience of having an examined life a practice of working with my suffering rather than always moving away from it. I'd like to tell you that it had gone in a straight line ever since, you know, nothing but but working with my suffering, and, and but not so, you know, it never is for any of us. But something brings us to that place. We would all have, we all have stories like that. Every one of you has a story like that. What brought you to this place of saying enough? And it's really important to notice that the Buddhist teaching it, it's, it actually, many people have commented on this, that this teaching about the nature of suffering sounds almost as though it's based on some kind of medical model of his day. And, you know, that you notice that something isn't right. You know, it's not, you've got some symptom or something that's being a bit peculiar. And we look for its causes, what's making this happen, how come it's going on. Then, after you figure that out, you figure out what's going to make it heal, how can I stop it, and then we find what supports health. And that's exactly what this teaching is all about. 
And nowhere in any medical model that I know of or in Buddhist teaching does it say, pretend it isn't happening. Nowhere. You know, it, it, it always says to look at it and see what's there. We know what difficulties can arise when we pretend it isn't going on. Sometimes it takes us to that place where we hit bottom, some kind of bottom in our life. And I always love to think of our friend Noah Levine, who's um, a Vipassana teacher now and um, founded the whole Dharma Punks um, lineage of practice. And Noah's father was a meditation teacher who tried really hard to teach him what he knew, um, but it took didn't take right away, as is often true with parents and kids. And Noah kind of woke up one day in juvenile hall, and where he was uh, had been arrested and was put there. And there he was, and he thought, hmm. And then he remembered that his father had given him some basic meditation instructions about following the breath. And you know, when you're in juvenile hall, what else are you going to do? And so he tried it, and it seemed actually to calm him down a little bit and bring some presence, and then one thing led to another, and now he's teaching this practice. So we're really invited to go into our suffering. So one more story. Some of you are familiar with Nasruddin, who was the great Sufi kind of fool and clown and bearer of teachings. So one day, Nasruddin lost his car keys. And he'd had them in the house, and then he couldn't find them. And, um, but it got to be dark, and, and the house was dark. And so he, he was um, looking around for the keys, looking, looking, and his neighbor came along and found him outside, looking in the pool of light under the streetlight. And so he said, well, what are you looking for? And Nasruddin said, I'm looking for my car keys. And he said, well, where did you last see them? You know, that's always a good question. He said, oh, they were back there in the house. And his neighbor said, well, why aren't you looking in the house? And Nasruddin said, because it's dark in there and it's light out here. <laughs> so, you know, we do that, right? We, we look, we don't want to go where it's dark. It's really hard to do that. But that's where the keys were. You know, if you go and you poke around <laughs> in the dark sometimes... You find them. And when we begin to look in the dark, this is a profound turning. Now it's the place of beginning to come to terms with our pain and with our suffering. It's a very, very important and deep place. And it's it's sometimes seen as the first step on the path which leads to liberation, actually. It's not easy. It's a deliberately turning against the stream of our habits. So in the story of the Buddha, this piece happened fairly quickly. He was sort of bowled over by all the pain that he saw, and then he saw the monk, and that created kind of an upwelling of inspiration. And whatever the monk had, he was sort of interested to see if he could find out what he needed to do to bring some easing and ending of suffering, and so he went home, and he basically <laughs> left his family and went into his training. <clears throat> and so, as he began to do that, this is then in those 
early practices when he began to to notice the nature of dukkha and the place where we're not happy with what is. You know? The human reaction to most events is to want them to be a little bit different. Sometimes not a lot different, but a little bit different from what they are. We want more or less or we want it harder or softer or higher or lower all kinds of things but just different or we want it to last longer or a little bit less you know this is the dukkha this place where it's never quite right it's that place it's not the event itself but it's that it's that little place in the mind that just can't let it be what it is so today Richard used that wonderful example this morning about maybe, you know, if you lay down to meditate, you had a nice comfy foam pad, you know. and But even then, sooner or later, you would be uncomfortable. It's kind of interesting to think about it, you know. At the very least, you'd get hungry or thirsty or you'd need to pee. You know, and your body would kind of say, oh, this isn't so good, it's not so comfy anymore. You know. Even even just lying in one position for a long period of time can bring a degree of discomfort. Or maybe you'd start thinking, you know, this pad, if it were another inch thick, it would really be even more comfy, you know. Or maybe if it were um you know, if it had inner springs, or maybe if I had a really nice blankie to put over me, you know, and then maybe if someone would bring me a cup of tea, and pretty soon, you know, you're really, really caught. We also, so actually one other, one other story before I move There's a story that somebody wrote me a note once saying, and you might appreciate this at the end of the first day of a retreat, saying, um, if someone leaped up towards the end of a sitting and yelled out, ring the goddamn bell, (laughs) would it be an act of compassion to ring the bell? And I've often told that story, you know, and said, no, it's not an act of compassion. But in thinking about it today, I was actually thinking, it's that, you know, that the real compassion in teaching that would be to help all of us begin to see that it's the wanting the bell that's the problem, right? That the sitting is just being the sitting. And, and that, so, so it's, the answer is still no. Nobody, you can't leap up and say, ring the bell and have us ring the bell. We won't do it. <laughs> because it's neither compassionate nor will it support the practice. We also get caught owning the pain that comes our way. This also supports the whole experience of dukkha. You know, the, the Buddha actually, it's kind of interesting. He didn't say, you are suffering. And he doesn't ever say, I suffer. He said, there is dukkha. Isn't that interesting? So he doesn't put any ownership to it at all. And it's the ownership, you know, it's my pain and my suffering that actually also contributes a great deal to the problem. 
So the classic image as a story, the story, it's often called the, the simile of the two arrows. So the pain of things is the first arrow. You know, that's the, your the knee hurting or your back aching or your heart being broken. And we don't like it. It's difficult. And we want it to go away. You know. And then the comes along the other arrow, which is, you know, I hate it, make it go away. This is terrible. That's the second arrow. So the so today, for example, today was cold and rainy. Right? And so the conditions on the planet for creating cold and rain on SoCal, California on the 27th day of May, which seems a little late for cold and rain, arose here. That's an objective fact. It's just conditions for rain, right? So, it's unpleasant, maybe. It's wet, it's cold. But it is the way it is. However, so you can look back in your reactions this morning. Was it okay? You know, I suspect... Probably not entirely for most of you. You know, there is that place of, you know, wait a minute. I mean, I've been saying it. Wait a minute. You know, it's it's the end of May. Where's the sunshine? I'm ready for warmth. I'm tired of rain. We've had enough. You know, lots of water at this point. And that's the place of the dukkha. It's that subtle, it's almost microscopic, that place of finding where something that is objectively true and then there's that little layer that goes over it of it's not okay. So our minds are wishing for warmth and sun and, and or maybe some anxiety arose. I didn't bring my rain gear and we didn't know that we had a, um, a poncho fairy who was going to go out to the <laughs> store and buy ponchos for everybody and um, take care of you. So while you're sitting here, you're still anxious, right? And this reactivity... And, and what goes on, that's mostly Jason's talk tomorrow night, but it is what's causing the wet weather to be a problem. That's the, it's the subjective reality. It's the place where we own the problem and make it mine. So I thought today, as I was working on this, of a friend that I had... I guess I probably first met her 16 or 18 years ago when I was teaching in Montana. And um, she had at that time already had one go around with breast cancer. And after I had known her for a while and become very good friends with her, it came back. And, you know, she went through what a lot of people go through and a lot of chemo and a lot of pain. It was in her bones. And um, in the end, she died. And she didn't have a lot of money, and she had a very good community around her who took care of her in extraordinary ways. People paid her mortgage and bought sacks of dog food for her dog and did all kinds of things. And I remember her saying to me, I don't know, a few months before she died, she said, you know, sometimes this is really awful, but I would never have known that I was loved. Because she just hadn't let herself know that she was loved before this. 
So there was some way in which she held this experience, not consistently. There was still plenty of dukkha, plenty of not liking it, plenty of reactivity, but there were also times when she could go into it in a very deep way and let it in. It's the place of reactivity that is the locus Mm. of the dukkha. It's Mm. the place where the dukkha is. When we rest with what is, no problem. When my friend softened into her situation, way less problem, way less problem. So I found this poem today in my stash. And I was amused because it points to the place where the dukkha happens. Is it starting to rain? Did the check bounce? Are we out of coffee? Is this going to hurt? Could you lose your job? Did the glass break? Was the baggage misrouted? Will this go on my record? Are you missing much money? Was anyone injured? Is the traffic heavy? Do I have to remove my clothes? Will it leave a scar? Must you go? Will this be in the papers? Is my time up already? Are we seeing the understudy? Will it affect my eyesight? Did all the books burn? Are you still smoking? Is the bone broken? Will I have to put him to sleep? Was the car totaled? Am I responsible for these charges? Are you contagious? Will we have to wait long? Is the runway icy? Was the gun loaded? Could this cause side effects? Do you know who betrayed you? Is the wound infected? Are we lost? Will it get any worse? The title of the pro- of the poem is Afraid So. <laughs> so there's a few different flavors of dukkha. There's the dukkha that's based in obvious suffering. So something, it's called dukkha dukkha, actually. I've always loved that. <laughs> dukkha dukkha. So this is, you know, like you bump your head or you stub your toe. Or maybe it's major life-threatening illness. Or, you know, or the emotional suffering that comes around life situations. It's really rooted in just having a body and being here as a human being and all of the ups and downs of life. There's the kind of dukkha that's based in the fact that life is constantly changing, impermanent, everything is coming and going, nothing lasts, not even the sweetest and yummiest moments, gone. And the third is the most difficult to, to <coughs> see and to experience. It's where, where things, it's, not, it's, dissimilar, it's similar to the impermanence, where things are, are due, they arise due to conditions and then they just disappear. You know, they just, it's, it feels really insubstantial. So while you are here, you can really use this Use this retreat as a laboratory. We've used that word a couple of times now for studying your suffering, your dukkha, the nature of it, and hopefully you'll find some things out about the ending of suffering. And 
really, you know, if you discover that you are unhappy or upset or angry or afraid at some point, you know, nobody's wishing that for you. And it's a, it's a great, <laughs> wonderful opportunity for growth. You know, it's a, it's a chance to really explore what, what is happening here. And, you know, Ajahn Chah, it said, used to wander around his monastery and you know, he'd kind of poke at people, you know, and say, are you suffering today? You know, are you suffering today? And we sort of having visions that Bob and Jason and Richard and I could all walk around and poke at you a little bit and say, you know, how's your suffering right now? You know, how's it going? Are you noticing it? Maybe not such a good idea. But the interesting thing is that, you know, somebody says, are you suffering? And we're always a little surprised when the answer is yes. You know, we, we just don't want it to be yes. We keep trying to push it aside. And the world, you know, the world is, is filled with suffering, with all of the many flavors. And so we can learn, we can take this noble path. This is a noble truth and learn to meet the suffering with wisdom and thus become more noble ourselves. This is counter to everything that our culture teaches us. We have a culture that's completely pleasure and desire based and it does not teach us about anything about the nobility that can be found in suffering. Somehow, I think we've felt for a while now that if we if we pretended that it wasn't noble to suffer, the suffering would go away. And it doesn't seem to be working, that I've noticed. So what is the nature of your suffering? Upset in the food line is like this. You know? The body does this. My knees do that. The mind is going towards anger. There you are in the food line and the last scone disappears. <laughs> Impermanence is like this, you know. Anger and irritation at the person who took it is like this. Maybe something else comes up, fear arises. Oh, fear is like this. Or maybe at some point in the retreat you're reflecting on your life, thinking about where you are and what span of years we have and it begins to feel kind of insubstantial and not very solid and maybe nothing meaningful and that's that's that last form of dukkha you know where it doesn't seem quite so real in the buddha's teachings on liberation awareness of dukkha awareness of suffering is the first step And there is, in fact, a description of the process of liberation, which is analogous to the description of cyclic and ever-deepening suffering, which the Buddha says really clearly, the first step, transcendental dependent origination, if you want the title, the first step is suffering in that place where we finally open to it and begin to find the way out. And in that description... This place is what often brings us to practice, which brings us to some point of inspiration and the faith to try something new and different. 
maybe the faith to try coming to a retreat for the first time. Eventually, when we work with this enough, we can come to some place of ease and equanimity with what is. So remember that poem from last night, the Galway Canal poem? Whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. We just don't get to skip that. You know, we keep trying to skip it, but we don't get to. So when Suzuki Roshi said, it's just suffering Buddha, you know, I have the sense that he was pointing to some place of what one could call awakened suffering. Undoubtedly, the pain was still there. He was a very sick man at that point. But the dukkha was not. The dukkha did not have to be there. Years and years ago, when I was doing that Jungian work, there was a teaching which was offered to us that came out of some of the Greek healing mysteries. And in this teaching, the teaching says, God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded, and God heals the wound. And it's a teaching, I sort of carried it in my pocket all of these years. And it's a teaching which very much honors the ability of, of suffering when we meet it to turn, turn us, to transform us into something that is indeed noble. So I thought I would close with one more poem. That one I'll save for tomorrow morning, maybe. This is from Dana Falls, and it's called Allow, so it will segue into Jason's talk tomorrow. She says, There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream, and it will create a new channel. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So let's breathe together for just a moment. No need to change your posture, just stay where you are. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice 
becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So thank you very much for listening. You have about 40 minutes for a walking practice before the closing sit with some chanting. <laughs>